Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's a change happening in the way we live, the way we work, the way we spend our money and make our decisions. We are evolving to be more conscious in our actions in a way that serves the world and makes it a better place. Welcome to The Ethical Evolution. The Ethical Evolution podcast is brought to you by The Ethical Change Agency. I'm Bindi, CEO and founder, and I am honoured to bring you the stories of those who create change through paying it forward and giving back. Ethical business owners and holistic healers who are determined to create collective change in the world. Once we have a change in consciousness and through collective change, we can become one. It's often underestimated how much sex and intimacy play a part in the foundation of who we are and how we function. Countless people experience trauma, abuse, dysmorphia, a lack of acceptance for themselves, their bodies and who they are. There's an embedded shame and fear that if we speak about sex and intimacy that we'll be judged and what we might be experiencing is wrong and embarrassing. The truth is that we're not alone and in this episode, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee is on a mission to bring the discussions about sex and intimacy out of the darkness and into the light. There's no boundaries, no judgment, no limitations in working with Dr. Lori Beth as a psychologist and sex and intimacy coach based in the UK. Since 1987, she's been helping individuals, couples and polygroups explore sexuality, recreate a healthy sexual identity after trauma, as well as deepen their awareness and understanding about intimacy and relationships. There's something empowering and freeing when these conversations come out of the dark and into the light. So I hope you find the courage to do the same regardless of your sexuality. Welcome, Dr. Laurie Beth, to The Ethical Evolution. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. Now, can you tell us who you are and what you do? Um, So I'm Dr. Laurie Beth Bisbee, and I am a psychologist and a sex and intimacy coach, an author, a speaker, and a podcast host. Um, I work with people to help them create and maintain meaningful relationships that have lots of great sex, but no shame. Um, And one of my areas of specialty is the treatment of trauma. So I work with a lot of people to resolve um, trauma from relationship violence and sexual violence, but also all sorts of other traumas as well. And the other specialty is uh, gender, sex, and relationship diversity, which means I work with a lot of LGBTQ plus people, people who are having alternative relationships like BDSM or kink or are non-monogamous. Wow. Wow. You must be a busy woman. (laughs) Yes. Now, just looking at the spectrum of what you cover, I mean, gosh, you must have some interesting conversations. 
Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> my life is not boring. No. <laughs> and guys, if you can't see Dr. Laurie Beth, she Beth, she has the brightest red hair. Um, so she's very, very vibrant uh, today. Now, um, in the work that you do, what would you say is your mission? I always tell people that my mission is to take sex and conversations about sex from the shadows to the light, because that's the the biggest part of my mission is that um, sex is part of life and we still treat it like it's um, something unusual or strange. Um, And so, and and it's one of the few areas we really still don't communicate well on. So that's probably my main one. And the other, I think the other one is really to promote authenticity Mm. uh, because they're related. I think your confidence increases when you're authentic. And so every area of your life improves. Yeah. And I mean, we're in 2020, right? You know, like why is it so difficult to talk about sex, regardless of what that is to you? You know, it's really interesting to me because as a, as a person who talks about it, 2020 is where we've been going backwards. And mm. this is a really, it's a really horrible thing to say, but it's true. I've, I've been um, recently dealing with social media issues because I talk about sex. Um, and we still equate sex with pornography. Mm everything is thrown into the same sort of ball of wax. You know, it's yeah. like when you read terms and conditions for social media and, and their, their terms of service, their community guidelines, when you read the community guidelines, it doesn't seem like somebody educating people on sex would have a problem. Yeah. But in reality, all you have to do is mention sex and people freak out. And I do believe that that has to do with this swing towards serious conservatism and it is a moving back in time where this was something that was just too embarrassing and too taboo to talk about Mm. and nobody's ever really gotten it to a place where people just feel like the same way you would go to a doctor if your stomach hurts you know, you should be going to a doctor if you're having sexual issues. It's not, it's no different, but there's still so much, it's this really weird disparity. It, it's used for entertainment and to sell, and it's used in a very, um, what's the word I want? It's used in, in a manner that actually isn't consistent for what it is. Mm. Yeah. And so on the one hand, sex is everywhere. And on the other hand, when it actually comes down to two people wanting to do something with each other, then it becomes this thing that's almost impossible to discuss. And what's really frightening now is that because we have the Internet, I had this conversation with um, an erotica author that I'm really fond of the other day. Um, And we were talking about the fact that because we're both old folk, I'm 57. (laughs) No um, way. Yeah, no, I am. I'm 57. (laughs) Um, The red hair helps me not look 57, but I am. (laughs) You do not look good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So he's, um, I mean, he's 55 and we were talking about it and I I was saying, you know, part of what it is, is that we learned about sex by experimenting because there was no, nothing to watch to learn about sex. You know, Mm. you you had what your parents told you, which in my case was pitifully little. (laughs) Um, And then you had sex education at school, which was ridiculous. Oh, yeah. 
Um, and so we learned by experimenting. So you would meet somebody, you would fall for them, you would try and do something and either it would work or it wouldn't. And, and you, you experimented with other people, you experimented with your own body. You didn't talk about it because nobody talked about it, but, but you might read a book. But we, didn't, we knew the difference between what was fantasy and what was reality because by the time we saw entertainment depictions of sex, we were already having sex ourselves. Mm. So we already knew that what we saw on the screen if we watched a pornographic film was not real. Mm because we'd already experienced what it was. Mm. So for us, there was a the big differentiation between what was reality and what was fantasy. And so we didn't use pornography and things like that as education. But the last couple of generations are coming up in a world where nobody, still nobody talks about sex, nobody teaches them about sex, but there's access to pornography. And so they think that's what sex is. Mm. And they can't distinguish between fantasy and reality when it comes to sex. I mean, I constantly say to people, no, that's entertainment, not education. Mm. <laughs> education involves learning to talk. It involves, you know, all the less exciting parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so true. And, yeah, you're right. It's like we've gone backwards, isn't it? Like um, we went through the whole mental health thing, like people not wanting to talk about yes. that and the stigma behind that. And we're starting okay. to get to a place where that's getting a bit more of a better narrative. But now, look at sex. Like how many people would go to the doctor now and go, hey, I need to talk about this? Um, they just wouldn't nowadays, would they? Well, no, and part of it is, is I mean, I'll give you examples of why people don't. So, um a 60-year-old man is diagnosed with prostate cancer and asks the doctor, the urologist, about sexual function, and the urologist blows the question off. Yeah. And doesn't answer. Yeah. Um, and it implies that it's much more important to think about making sure you save your life than to think about your sexual function, as if both aren't important. Yeah. And that then has a mental health um, effect as well. Absolutely. You know, if, if you, you can't sexually function properly, that impacts all of your life. Absolutely. And and we don't talk about that either. Mm. And, and, and it's a huge effect. So we still believe that sort of people over the age of 50 are past it, which I find absolutely amazing mm. because, you know, it's just so untrue. There are people have sex into their 90s, their 100s. If they're able to do it, they will do it. <laughs> that doesn't stop. Yeah. So true. Yeah. I, I know people over 50 that, well, yeah, they're more active than, than some people in their 20s. I have better sex now than I did in my 20s. Yeah, well, you know what you're doing now. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the point. I know what I'm doing. I'm not ashamed of what I want. I know how to talk about what I want and to ask for what I want. Mm. All of those mean I'm going to have better sex. Well, you know, um, you're more empowered now too, aren't you? Like. Absolutely. Mm. But it doesn't need to be that way. No. If, if we actually raised people that this is a part of life, that there are many different ways to do this and many different expressions of yourself and that all of them are valid and gave people the support that they needed to discover who they were, taught them how to communicate. So a lot of what I end up talking with people about isn't really sex. I mean, I do talk a lot about sex and I teach a lot about sex, but the basic skills are the things that people are missing. Mm. They're missing, they're missing really good communication skills. I mean, really good communication skills. They don't know how to be present. And, and this is worse now than it ever was before because people multitask. Yeah. 
know, they have six screens and they're having a conversation. Being present is one of the best gifts you can give in a relationship to actually be fully there. And it's necessary for good sex. Mm. Good sex requires you to be present. So nobody knows how to do that anymore. Um, They don't know how to soothe themselves when they're upset, Mm. which means that everything needs to be dealt with right now. Yeah. They don't know how to negotiate. Because, again, these are just skills Mm. that they haven't learned or reality test. Yeah. You know, so there's there's a list of things that – are what I consider to be emotional and relationship skills, life skills, emotional life skills that we don't get taught anywhere at school. And if, cause it's assumed that we'll learn from our parents, mm. but if our parents don't have good skills, then we're not going to have good skills. Mm. And we're not going to know it until we're out in the world failing all over the place, you know, and, and then being upset about the fact that we can't have a decent relationship and we don't understand why, or um, and one of the most common ones that I hear on a very regular basis from women is, I can have an orgasm by myself, but I never have an orgasm with a partner no matter what they do. Is it technique? Well, probably not, right? That's the, the most common is that they don't trust enough to let go. Yeah. And there are ways to teach you how to make a good risk assessment so you can learn to trust someone. But again, that none of that is considered important. It's, it's relegated to, you should be able to figure this out or you should magically know. (laughs) (laughs) It's magically okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today, Dr. Lori Beth was, um, you know, when we, when we look at relationships and trust and, uh, those who have gone through sexual trauma, um, so I myself have, um, and it can really impact your ability to get back into that kind of space with someone in a relationship and, and who you are in that space and, and to trust someone that that's not going to happen again. How do you help people through that? So there's two parts to that. Um, and I learned this having been through severe sexual violence and um, my, my recovery and then growth came in two parts. And one of the parts is looking at the actual trauma itself. And if people are still having intrusive thoughts about the trauma, if they're still able to be triggered into it, even if only when they're in bed, um, then it's worth doing work around the trauma so that that is dealt with to the point where it is really in the past. Mm which means that you don't get triggered into it. So you don't feel like you're there. You don't have flashbacks. You don't have intrusive imagery. You don't feel the emotions from the time. It doesn't mean that you never think about it or that it never existed. I mean, it did, it happened, but it's no, it's firmly in the past instead Mm. of in the present. Because when we're triggered, it's like everything is happening again. So the trauma is really in your present at that point. So that's step one. And then that works Uh, really well to handle everything for only a small percentage of people who have had experienced sexual violence. The second part of it is actually working on those skills and is actually helping a person not be triggered in that different way in the moment. Hmm. They need to learn a new pattern of being able to trust that somebody will touch them appropriately being really clear on what they want so that they can ask, being really clear about consent and good at negotiation and the communication. 
And that's, you know, skills building and helping people do that in situ, which is the bit that normally doesn't get dealt with if you go to therapy. Yep. So that to me is the coaching part. Um, and the other is the therapy part. And the, the reason is because people don't really think about it being necessary. Um, the, the myth has been for a long time that if you resolve the other stuff, then automatically people will move into healthy patterns. But the fact is, if, if you don't have adaptive skills, you're not going to get them by osmosis. Right? Mm. You mm. cling to the skills you have because they helped you and they were good at some time. Most people aren't stupid. They don't do things over and over again that cause them pain. They do things that have worked in the past. Yeah. So when you take away the stuff that they're trying to handle, they don't have new skills. So they'll go back to the old skills. So you've got to give people that set of skills. Yeah. And I remind people all the time, you're not broken. You're just missing skills. Mm. Yeah. Because most of the time, if you've been through sexual violence, you start to feel like you're broken, like you 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 can't have a relationship, you can't function sexually, there's something wrong with you because these things happen over and over again and it never works right. Um, and that's really just the effects of the trauma, that, that and not having the skills that you need. And I think um, another thing that we see happen so often is, um, you know, a lot of people who have gone through, you know, sexual trauma of, of any kind, um, they often don't talk about it they don't deal with it they hide it um and it's something that they'll carry with them all the time there's two problems with that one is of course if you don't deal with it then you're not going to do better later Mm. you may not have another relation you may have a better relationship in that the person that you're with doesn't cause you harm but you're not going to be fully present if you haven't dealt with it Mm. and the, that's the other big problem is that if you if you've got live trauma and you don't have great skills you are you've got a neon sign on your forehead that says i'm easy prey and um, and i i often get clobbered when i talk about this to people like you're blaming the victim it's like no i'm not this is a fact of how things work and if you look in the animal kingdom predators look for the weak the infirm the ones who seem like something's off. If you um, have unresolved sexual trauma, it's like walking down a street in a dangerous city with a pair of headphones on your your ears, right? Yeah. Because you're not present. So there are things you're missing and a predator can see that. That's their job. Their job is to, is to find prey. So they can see that they'll pick you instead of somebody else. It's not, it's not I'm not saying that if you do all these things, you would never be a victim. Mm. Because that's not true. Mm. You control what you can control and they're responsible for what they're doing. However, if you do do these things, you're in much better shape and you look like everybody else Mm. in that way. You're not standing out. Um, And it it can be hard for people to to, to grasp that and take that on. But this is about protecting yourself because nobody else is going to do that for you. Yeah, that's so true. And can I just say, it took me many years to learn that many years because um, I kept attracting the same kind of thing and it kept happening mm-hmm. over and over. And I'm like, uh, this is you. you got to deal with this. <laughs> yeah, but mm. it's you but not you. Yeah, yeah. Because what people think is this is me. There's something wrong with me. I'm a bad person. That's why and it's like, no, mm. this is unresolved stuff. And once you resolve the stuff, then it's not you anymore. Then you'll be able to see it. 
Yeah. If you can't see the pattern, you're just going to keep repeating it. That's it. That's it. And once I picked up on that pattern, I went, okay, we're going to break this now. <laughs> and it stopped. <laughs> um, and that's always so amazing. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about today is um, the LGBTQ community and um, identity, um, sexual identity um, in a relationship. Mm-hmm. So uh, for me, uh, when I came out, I was very, very different to how I am now, can I just say? <laughs> and I think um, probably a lot of people uh, who identify as gay, lesbian, whatever it might be, um, have this inner turmoil or struggle that they don't know what they should be. And I think the mm-hmm. thing that I've learned is that whatever you are is okay and yep. um, that evolves over time. And um, you you get to learn, um, you know, uh, who you really are. Um, what kind of work do you do in that area uh, with people um, in the LGBTQ community? I mean, I, so I see a lot of individuals who are struggling to figure out gender and identity yeah, which are clear, which are obviously two different things. Yeah, um, with sexual identity and sexual orientation, it's like you are who you should be. You just need to let yourself be that. That's it. Yeah. And so a lot of the work I do with people is is uh, is helping them to look at themselves without pulling away. Yeah. Because once they start that process, then you can support them in just becoming whoever they are. And then I spend a lot of time helping people talk to relatives and deal with. Um, friends and and deal with society's negative reactions. I mean, people seem to think that you know it's not a problem anymore that society's fine with it, and it's just just not true. I mean, people suffer discrimination all over the place mm. for you know any of the letters of Absolutely. the rainbow. You yeah. know, it, it is it is really difficult when people come out, and um, and it's there are there are groups for which it can be harder. I mean, bisexuality is is still you know, um, a very difficult one for people to come out with because there's discrimination on both sides. Yeah, yeah. Lots of people just tell, you know, just you're greedy. It's like, <laughs> no, this is just no. who I am. <laughs> but it's, 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 as you say, it's an, it's an evolving. And so I, I end up spending a lot of time with people helping them and supporting them in, in doing that. Um, and the same sorts of sets of skills and dealing with the same kinds of previous trauma. Um, sometimes people are really unaware of what supports are available out there or don't even know where to go in terms of dating or what they do or they, they're they're shy and it's just you know I think that people forget is if you if you're not somebody who comes out as a teenager then it's it's a second adolescence in a sense because you're so shy true. and all the things you were when you first started dating heterosexually mm. there's no, there's no difference so if you don't have the, the the fortune of knowing that young then you end up having to go through this second period of adjustment while you figure out what dating looks like and what kind of a relationship you actually want and what sex might look like and so that's the other thing I end up dealing with which is sexual problems you know which don't evaporate because people figure out what their orientation is yeah that's um, so true yeah and, and cup and couples, and so I deal with a lot of couples because I also do um, non-monogamy. That I get a lot of um, LGBTQ couples who are trying to decide if they're monogamous or non-monogamous. So I spend a lot of time there. Wow. <laughs> um, so I guess um, in in um, same-sex relationships, um, one of the questions I do have for you is: um, say you're in a relationship and you you're fairly recently have come out 
and um, you, you're exploring your sexuality and, and, and what feels right for you. Um, and let's say you've found something that really um, works for you and, and, you know, fires you up, but your partner hates it. What do you recommend people do in that kind of situation? We start with negotiation. Mm -hmm. And we start to see if actually does the person hate it or hate part of it, hate all of it? Is there some small bit of it they can they can be okay with? Um, Because it's really hard if one person there's something that really works for them. Yeah. And the other one's like, yeah, no, no. Mm. Mm -mm." So there's some negotiation around whether you can do some of it, find some part of it that'll work or even. Well, maybe you don't hate it. You just don't really, it's not your favorite thing, but you're willing to do that if your partner's willing to do the thing that isn't their favorite thing. Mm. Sometimes that doesn't work. And then you're looking at things like, is this something that you can deal with in fantasy mm. with masturbation um, and or bring the fantasy into the, the couple? So you're having sex in one way, but you're talking about the stuff that really turns you on. So there's lots of ways that you can kind of bring it in through the back door in a sense that will allow everybody to get their needs met. And sometimes some people do consider non-monogamy. That is an option for people in the situation, particularly when, for example, if somebody discovers they're kinky and their partner really isn't yeah. Um, yeah. and has no interest whatsoever, sometimes negotiations can be made about going somewhere else to do the kinky stuff as long as the same type of sex isn't being had is often one of the conditions. It's like, I don't mind if you go over there and get a spanking, but I don't want you having oral sex with that person or, and so you can negotiate some of those things. But I think the the most important part of it is, is both partners being willing to think outside the box if necessary and recognizing that the important bit is that you're each getting your needs met and that you're committed to each other and work on getting those needs met. So it it really clearly shows how important communication is in those situations because, one, if you don't tell each other what what really works for you or what doesn't, um, that's where you can start to get cracks and things can start to fall apart. Absolutely. And, I mean, I'd say that probably about a third of the people that come to me is because they they don't feel they can tell their partner what they want. Mm. Wow. Sometimes they're afraid that they're going to be rejected. Um, sometimes they're afraid their partner's going to be disgusted and then the relationship will be over. Other times they just can't say it. They can't bring themselves They're They're actually so disgusted by themselves. They can't, they yeah. can't even go there. Yeah. Um, that's about a third of the people that see me where that's the problem. Wow. And oh, thank God you're around because <laughs> people need this so much. Now, Talking about the people that you help, can you give us some examples of, you know, the, the kind of change you've helped people make? Um, okay, so some of my trauma clients are amazing. Uh, I, I think of one woman that I worked with who had experienced extreme sexual violence as a child, who had never managed to have a sexual relationship as an adult. She was in her 40s, um, and she'd never managed to have a sexual relationship as an adult where she actually felt anything during the sex. So she was so traumatized that she dissociated. So she was basically felt like she was standing outside her body watching herself. Wow. That's where we were when we started. When we finished, she'd been married for, I think she was been married for about six years by then. And when we finished, um, 
so we spent a, a year working with each other because the, she had lots of stuff that needed to be dispersed and and then she needed the confidence to be able to try things again but they had sex where she had an orgasm for the first time wow after the six years yeah and it was the first time she'd had an orgasm during sex with a partner um and it it, I, i hasten to say it wasn't during intercourse and that's not unusual because it's about 28 to 35 percent of women never have orgasms with penetrative sex so Mm. you know that's just a statistic it doesn't have to do with trauma it's just the way it is it's the way we're built um but she did have she did have her first orgasm with him and then um two years later they were still going strong and she i mean she was always amazed she was like and the trauma didn't come back which was wonderful um so her life changed completely yeah because she'd been holding on to that for so long and it hampered every aspect of her life yeah so when someone can get that freedom and that expression um in in a loving way like it just opens you up really doesn't it absolutely i Mm. mean we all need that and um i mean even people even people who are asexual need affection right Mm. there's you know, so it, it may not be sexual intimacy, but there's still intimacy. And um, sometimes when people have had severe sexual violence, it's really very difficult for them to have any kind of physical intimacy, even physical affection, because touch has become such a negative thing. Yeah. And that really hampers um, re- relationships. And it also hampers personal growth and development and feeling good in yourself. Yeah, it just touches so uh, many parts of our lives, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so that's one. Um, I think um, another – I've helped couples successfully go from monogamous to non-monogamous, which is um, an amazing transition to make. Um, I can think of three in the last uh, five years that have opened their relationships up successfully and still remain together and happy and there were no crashes and – no crashing and burning, no divorces. No, <laughs> um, it's usually easier if you come to a relationship knowing you're non-monogamous with, with another non-monogamous person. But all of all three of these couples, it, it was something that evolved out of the relationship. One couple was because of what I was describing before, where you know she wanted one thing and he was just like, you know, I never I'm going to want to go there. Mm. And I, I don't have anything. I don't, it doesn't disgust me. It doesn't upset me. It doesn't bother me that you want to go there. It's just, I am so uninterested. I don't think I could be convincing. So that's where they started. Right. Um, yeah. And it's, I think it's um, a very brave thing for people to explore that in a relationship, whereas most people would just walk away and, and go find someone else who isn't into their stuff, you know, like, um, I think that's such a brave thing to do to still stick together when um, you can't meet each other's needs in that way. Yeah. And I mean, and it's not a choice for everyone to make. Mm. There are, you know, I also help people break up when that's the appropriate thing to do Mm. Um, because you can do that in a way that is respectful to each other in a way that preserves uh, the positives that you had in the relationship and preserves, particularly if you have kids, preserves the ability to work together Um, or you can crash and burn everything. And so it's even if, even if people can't find a way to make that adjustment with each other, if they can, care about each other enough to want the other person to be happy, Mm. then there's a process you can go through to separate amicably. And I think it's important. I think, you know, if you can't meet each other's basic sexual needs, 
it's going to be hard to keep a relationship together unless you can find a workaround hmm. because not getting those need, needs met for your whole life makes for a miserable human. Yeah, absolutely. So, And, and I, depression and anxiety are really common when none of those needs are being met. Yeah, so true. Um, so in the work that you do, what would you say is the biggest challenge that you face and how do you overcome it? Um, me personally, as, as the, as the provider, mm. no, there's a couple, I think, uh, sometimes it's, it's being able to see it from all the viewpoints mm. that can be very challenging. Um, and so it, it's that uh, for me, the way that I get through that is to take a step back from the whole thing, um, and, and sort of look at it like it's a puzzle to see where the pieces fit. Um, and so that's one, some trauma work, it can be challenging not to take the uh, emotions home. Yeah. That's, that's the other one. Mm. Um, and not to be triggered. I don't get triggered into my own stuff because that stuff has, was done. I've dealt with that so long ago that that's not live, but triggered by the fact that it's so horrible. What yeah. some people come in to tell me is so horrible that it can be really difficult not to, to take that all in. And some of the way that I deal with that is because I work in a really specific way when I'm dealing with trauma. Um, and so my focus is completely on the other person. So I'm not, mm. I'm not in mm. here. I can feel, but I'm not taken into the feelings because I'm focused on the person outside of me. Also, because I don't end sessions, trauma sessions, while somebody's in the middle of upheaval, I work until we reach um, a good point to end the session. And that has a specific definition. Mm. Uh, uh, trauma is, is a bell curve. Anxiety goes up, it peaks, and eventually it will go down. So I don't allow somebody to leave a session where they're at the top of that anxiety because that's re-traumatizing. Yeah. So that helps because by the time they leave, they're feeling better. And so I've gone, rode the wave with them. So I'm feeling better. But still, sometimes you take it home and and then I deal with it by doing something pleasurable for me. Um, sometimes I have to just, you know, go and take the dog for a walk or sit and have a cuddle with the dog. Um, sometimes I write. Sometimes I play music. Um, sometimes I grab my husband, you know. <laughs> Depends on what's going on, and you know it's a it's a common theme I see uh, with with people in your field of work is that um, you've got to have great self care um, because you you can't heal others if you you don't take care of yourself. So um, I think that is super important for people in your field, as as no doubt Absolutely. you see. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> we need our own supports. I have a friend that I talk to every week without fail. Um, it's you know it's funny before the pandemic. Um, we didn't do this, but now, but since the pandemic we do, and now afterwards, I'm sure we'll continue. Mm. Um, mm. And we make time for each other every week. And sometimes we're just laughing about something. And sometimes one of us is supporting the other. Sometimes we're taking turns. It's just, it's that space to just be completely elsewhere. It's just so important. Yeah. And I, I think that's uh, one of the blessings of the pandemic, to be honest, is that yeah. we've developed a greater ability for human connection, regardless of where we are. And I think yeah. that is so good um, out of this year, if we could find anything good. <laughs> no, I mean, I th certainly <laughs> think that it's brought home a lot of things um, about um, relative importances and things. Um, I, I was commuting 
uh, a lot before mm. this. Um, I, I've had an office in London for 20 years. I don't have an office in London anymore. Mm. Um, and while I still enjoy the city, um, I don't feel any need to be there and any need to absolutely to meet people in person on a regular basis. I mean, I'll start doing in-person events again because I, I love to do events, couples events, individual events. Um, so I'll start doing those again once things are safer. But um, because I don't feel that need to have the office in London, that opens up a whole world about where I can live. Mm. You know, so it does. It's done a lot of sort of reordering for a lot of people, myself included. Yeah. Yeah, and probably save yourself some time and money at the same time. <laughs> I should hope so. <laughs> now, um, I love asking this question um, and I'd be keen to hear your response because there's no wrong answer. Um, can you define for me what being ethical means to you? Acting in a way that um, I can look in the mirror and feel good about myself. Mm. That's my simplest definition. Um, so, I mean, I could get all philosophical and talk about <laughs> lack of harm and, 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 you know, treating people equally and, and all of these things that are very important to me. But for me, being ethical is to be able to look in the mirror and feel good about me and so not feel like I've done something that, um, goes against my own internal code. Mm, yeah. I love that. Um, so what, what are you working on at the moment? Like what's your future plans? I know it can be a bit difficult to plan at the moment with what's going on in the world, but um, what, what's ahead for you? So I um, finished a draft of a book in, um, so I, in, I, well, let's put, let's wind this back. I released my memoir in, in May of 2020 in the middle of this. Oh, wow. Um, it's an erotic memoir. So it's got a piece of erotica, a piece of my life story, and then a little piece of analysis for each section. Um and then I wrote the draft to the uh, follow-up book from that, which is a self-help book um, to teach people skills to recover from gaslighting and, and trauma. Mm. Um, and so I wrote that draft in November. Um, I've, I've just um, given revisions to uh, my mentor who I do this do book stuff with. And um, so I think that'll be out. I'm sure that'll be out the beginning of January. Um, I'm halfway through a collection of erotica, which should be out sometime in January. Um, and I got a couple of other book projects running around. I've got an event that I'm doing. Um, I'm doing my, my normal retreat, but I'm doing it virtual. So I'm doing a two and a half day retreat at the end of January. So that should be fun. But I think long-term, like if I'm looking at the next year, my plan is to just do more, um, more teaching, more events, more group stuff, um, and more writing because and and broadcasting and stuff. I love podcasting. I've got one that's the A to Z of Sex, which has been around since 2016. Wow. Um, and yeah, yeah. I've been weekly since 2016. And that's insane. Um, oh, well done, you. <laughs> I know. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I didn't think I would still be doing it, but I love it. I have a great time. So, um, and then I I do an erotica one that I started a couple months back, which has been fun. Um undo more television and more broadcasting because I just have a ball. So yeah, um, I'll probably be even more visible than I already am. And also to take bigger breaks, mm. you know, um, take really defined bigger breaks. I mean, that's something that I haven't been very good at. Um, and 
I need to be I need to be very, much better at defining. So we hope I'm going to be a better at planning. <laughs> well, well it sounds like you're going to be super busy, and I'm so so glad to hear that you are going to be more visible. And no doubt, I think you and I are going to be talking some more because uh, yes, uh, it's one of my plans for 2021 as well. So uh, I think there's some opportunities there. Um, Absolutely, and hopefully, <laughs> I will get. Oh, I've been to Australia once for a very brief time. And I'd like to go back and actually see properly. The only thing I really saw was far north Queensland. Oh, um, nice. Which is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I spent like five days, six days, a week in Australia, which is like, you know, like spending a week in America. Like you do nothing. It's a week. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful spot. So, yeah, you'll have to come back down because, uh, yeah, it's um, it's so beautiful. Um now, if people want to find out more about you and get in touch with you, where can they go? The easiest is drlauriebethbisbee.com. Um, and so that's D-R-L-O-R-I-B-E-T-H-B-I-S-B-E-Y.com. Excellent. Um, you can find me on um, Facebook, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, on Twitter and Instagram, at Dr. Bisbee. And on TikTok, Lori Beth UK, and I do a lot of TikTok. Oh, she's a TikToker. Um, I, have, I have so much fun. Um, and and emailing me is really the easiest, easiest, always the easiest way to get a hold of me. Awesome. <clears throat> now I've got the final big question for you, Dr. Lori Beth. Um, what's the change you'd like to see in the world, and how can we bring it to life? I want to see everybody talking to each other. Um, you know, which is not surprising given what I've said the whole time. <laughs> I really would like to see a world in which people are allowed to be who they are, and um, which is what requires which requires communication. And um, and I guess the way we can bring it about is first by acknowledging and owning who we are, and at owning not only our positive points but our negative points, and doing the work on ourselves so that we feel happy being who we are. And then being willing to be non-judgmental with people. Um, And that's like one of the biggest things that seems to have gone out the window. Even things like, even things that I think are important, like, like when somebody's done something wrong, like bring, bringing their, their awareness to what they've done. We no longer do that in any kind of a positive way. We, you know, cancel culture, we scream Mm. and we shout at people. We do it in ways that, that mean that somebody's not likely to get any growth out of it or even be able to accept what you say. Because if you, if you, if you're really aggressive to somebody, their first response is to be defensive. Mm. So they're not going to hear you if they're being defensive. So I like us to learn how to do that differently. So we could start to understand each other instead of fight with each other so much. Yeah, well, I guess it, it comes back down to, again, communication and, and letting go of that judgment because, you know, it's pretty much the root of uh, where all our issues come in relationships and understanding each other as communities and, and identities. And, yeah, uh, let's try and uh, turn that ship around, huh? <laughs> We'd love to. I mean, most of the judgment comes because people are frightened, you know, um, because something is different. There's nothing to be frightened of. You can just go, it's different. It doesn't mean I have to like it. I can go, ooh, that's interesting, right? Yeah. And I can be nice yeah. to you. And I don't have to take part in whatever it is you're doing that I'm not interested in. I can go, hmm, but I can be friendly and I can be nice and I can find out the place where we have something in common. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Oh, Dr. Laurie Beth, I can't thank you enough for being part of the ethical evolution. It's been an absolute joy. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Ethical Evolution podcast. If you're an ethical business owner, change maker or holistic healer who's determined to make a change in the world and you need support to spread your message, visit ethicalchangeagency.com to collaborate. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business, spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your hosts for the The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Hour.